and randomly the lights would turn off, they'd turn the alarm on, and you had to take this emerge in the dark, take this immersion suit out and get into it. And it's this like oversized, awkward wetsuit with like crab hands and like a hood, you know, like Velcro everywhere, because that was the only thing that was going to keep you alive if your boat was sinking. And I was thinking in my head, if I ever have to do this in real life, I'm going to quit this job. Yeah, it's going to be like and the then worst I did. day. No, no <laughs> yeah. way. Really? I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you would like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash halfhourintern. In today's episode, we explore the path of being a commercial fishing inspector. So that's my title for the episode. It was very, very difficult to come up with a title for the episode that would be explanatory, like in a way that just reading it, you would understand what the job is. And I know that that does not do the best job, but the actual title of what Natalie does is a North Pacific ground fish observer and she works for the Fisheries Monitoring Analysis Division of the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. So it's, it's, it's like a lot of stuff to think about. A lot of words that I had to like bumble around in my head trying to come up with how I should title this. But basically what it is that Natalie does is she goes out on boats with fishermen in Alaska and... Uh, needs to monitor them to make sure that they are following all the rules, that they are not catching species that they should not catch, that they are not um, going into habitats of other protected wildlife, that they are not catching too many fish. Um, all the different things that I guess I, I, before this, I didn't really know that we had all of these checks and balances in place. I kind of figured that fishermen went off by themselves and then they came back in and maybe, you know, they, there was some like a way station type of situation. But um, they actually are sending agents out on the boats with the fishermen, and that is what Natalie is, is one of these agents. So she will explain what that entire life is like, what it's like being on an Alaskan fishing boat, um, what it's like to almost die on an Alaskan fishing boat. A lot of cool stuff in this episode. So without further ado, here is Commercial Fishing Inspector. Natalie, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to hear about this. So uh, to give everyone a little bit of background, we were at breakfast the other morning. Uh, I was at bre- I should say I was at breakfast with my wife. You were at breakfast there with your boyfriend. And uh, you were sitting down this like family style table from us. And then another group came in and they needed to sit where you were sitting. And then you got moved like right next to my wife and I. Mm-hmm. And it was just like the, mo- the most wonderful thing that could have happened to us because you guys were so nice and interesting. And, uh, and when you told me what you did or what you just recently finished doing... I was like, oh my God, I have to have you on my podcast. This is so cool. So if we could please start with just, um, I guess, a little bit of your backstory. And I guess more importantly, how did you hear about this sort of thing as a job and like sure. end up pursuing that? Because there's so many jobs like like this where when I hear about it, it's just like, oh my God, like I didn't even think about that being a thing. And it would, ne- yeah. like, it would never occur to me to do that unless somebody else had told me, you know, and now that I've heard about it, I'm so interested. Mm-hmm. So I graduated 
from college and I wanted a job that was going to provide me some sort of flow of income to help pay off my loans um, in my field and also give me time to travel. I knew I wasn't ready to settle down yet and find that nine to five job that was going to be full time. So I was trying to balance these three criteria and look for a job at the same time. And really everyone told me that you're a dreamer, you're never going to find a job like that. And then I spoke to one of my professors and she's like, why don't you be a fishery observer? You work a couple months, um, three to four months per contract. You get paid pretty well so you can, you know, put all that money aside for whatever you want to do. And then you can take as much time off to travel or do whatever you need to do. I was like, perfect. I'm doing it. And um, there's all sorts of programs. and But the one I wanted to do was Alaska because I've never been there. It was always somewhere I wanted to go. And I thought, being in the marine biology um, field that I should really, you know, pay my dues and work in Alaska and try to gain a lot of experience there. It's funny. I, for whatever reason, didn't even consider that you could have done this other places in Alaska because I think I've been brainwashed by all the shows on TV that show all the fish oh, boats yeah. in Alaska. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, duh. Like, yeah, you go to Alaska because that's where all the fish Fishes, boats are. Yeah. But this is a good point. You you could have done this in a way probably like nicer or, or like better climate, I should say. More hospitable. Um, yeah, yeah, more hospitable. Exactly. Yeah, you can pretty much do it in anywhere in the U.S. that has fishing ports. So you can do it in San Diego. And there were uh, programs in San Diego that do like swordfish monitoring and tuna. You could go to Hawaii, which sounded amazing. And basically these programs, um, depending on the environment you're going into and the condition you're going to be on in the boats, that's how they pay you. So in Hawaii, those observers make bank. And that's because they're working with people who don't speak English, which really isn't such a big deal. But you might be out on in out at sea for a month and not talk to anybody for a month. Yeah. And they run out of food. And so they end up having to eat fish bait instead of their fish because they don't want to sell their product. So those people make a lot of money. And I was like, "Mm, not ready to go that extreme yet. But I wasn't trying to stay in my comfort zone and stay in San Diego where I'm going to get paid like $15 an hour to do this job. So I was like, okay, Alaska sounds like a good compromise. Well, and people listening to this are probably thinking like, who cares if you can't talk to them? Like it's Hawaii, go. But to your point, you're on the boat for a month. You're not in Hawaii. Like you're just in the ocean. The ocean doesn't know that you're in Hawaii, you know? Yeah. And people think, oh, Hawaii, it's beautiful. The weather gets really bad there. And these boats are small boats with like tons of people packed onto them. It just didn't sound like something I was ready to do. But a lot of my coworkers that worked in Alaska use that experience and then go to Hawaii and do what the, what we did in Alaska there because they're like, yeah, I could take on more challenges. Yeah. So I just wasn't ready for that. So tell us a little bit more about your background. You're referencing college and stuff like that. Is your degree in biology, I assume? Um, yes, it's in environmental biology. And then I did my focus in marine biology. So I did most of my elective courses in marine biology. And I went to UC San Diego um, and they have the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, which is like right there on the coast. So most of my professors were also researchers at Scripps. So there was tons of, you know, really good um, advisors and like people to look up to for advice. So I'm really glad I went there and it kind of opened up doors and opportunities for me. That's awesome. What did you want to do when you were there? Like, what were you thinking you were going to do when you got out of school or like path you were going to pursue? Well, you know, everyone in college thinks they're going to do something. I was like, I'm going to work with marine mammals. And that was my goal. And then I graduated and I realized it's extremely competitive and you pretty much have to either go the SeaWorld route 
or get your PhD. And I'm actually in the process of applying to graduate school to work with marine mammals. So maybe I will, you know, um, pursue those goals. Dude, that's so awesome. Yeah. I don't know if you've listened to the episode of Half Hour Intern, Marine Mammal Veterinarian, but, you know, I know some contacts. I'm yeah. just going to, you know, float that out there. I thought I about could try that to help too. you out. Um, <clears throat> cool. So tell us about, like, arriving in Alaska and the whole process of, like, getting on the boat and I guess, like, what's going through your head and are you scared? Are you nervous? Mm-hmm. So let me start off by saying this whole job you had to there was tons of like hurdles to cross before I could even get to Alaska so the training is based out of Seattle and um, not only did I have to provide tons of documents I had to get like three different um, checkups with three different types of doctors the you know um, I had to what else did I have to do I had to get letters of recommendations I had to turn in GR, um, GRE scores GPA like tons of things they just want to see so that you can watch the fish yeah well because it's there are scenarios where it's a lot harder than you'd think I mean you're out there and you have no access to anybody so if there are problems to solve you're solving them on your own um, that's pretty much why they want to make sure that you kind of have a good background. Could you give us a quick example to just like a quick detour of like one of said problems? Okay. So, um, when you're sampling on a boat, you're sampling for whatever's coming up. So you're sampling for whatever that boat is targeting. So let's say a boat is targeting halibut. Um, you're monitoring for halibut and you're sampling the halibut comes up, which includes weighing them, measuring their size, making sure they're halibut because there's other flatfish that might look like halibut and you want to make sure that that's what they're catching. You're also doing the bycatch that they might catch. So when you're fishing for halibut, typical bycatch include like dog sharks, um, tons of cod, tons of pollock, black fish, uh, uh, sable fish or black cod, uh, rock fish. There's just... Basically, depending on how good the boat is at fishing, you might get mostly halibut with a couple of other things, or you might just get, you're just standing there like, oh, crap, there's so much other stuff coming up. It's funny you say, depending on how good the boat is, like, what could they be doing? I feel like when you're casting out nets, like, you're getting what's That's coming what in the I net. Thought. Like, how, how can they be better so, at it? L- maybe I should start by explaining, um, when I was a North Pacific ground fish observer, so we only worked with North Pacific groundfish. Like I said, there's observers for everything. So what most people are familiar with, like you said, is the Discovery Channel show um, Deadliest Catch. And those are all crab boats. And I was on a couple of those boats, but we weren't targeting crab when I was on them. But those crab boats also have observers. So I was doing North Pacific groundfish, and they have three different types of boats. So you can either go in a dragger, which is, like you said, that huge net that they just drag at the bottom of the ocean, and it just kind of pulls up whatever they get. Or you can be on a a pot boat which are the same ones that they use for crab. They throw the pot over whatever comes in the pot or that you can be on a long liner. And halibut is selective fishing, so it's a long line. So they set out this huge uh, line with hooks like every 60 meters, not every 60 meters, every 60 centimeters. And then, um, yeah, so you're aiming for halibut. Some of these fishermen literally will throw their line wherever. Like, oh yeah, I heard this is a good place. And you're getting like, trash coming up you're getting like japanese fishing gear from when like it was okay for the for uh, japanese people to fish there and those are the people that just don't know what they're doing and then sometimes you get like the really badass fishermen that are like okay they know what they're doing like they're getting the big halibut they're getting them quick and yeah 
that's the boat you want to be on. So I, I like to buy like line caught fish if possible. So you're saying that a lot of times a line caught fish, it's not like some dude that just went out. Like I, I like to think it's just like, you know, some San Diego surfer dude who just like went out for the day, got his one fish, brought it back in, sold it. Somehow I got it, you know, like luck of the draw. Uh, you're saying that like it's a line, but it has like tons of hooks on it. So what a bizarre way to fish, by the way. Yeah, I know. Right. And I thought this can't be effective when I first saw it, but um, it is for some some type of fish. So if you're buying it from a supermarket, it's commercial. It's a commercial fish. It's caught commercially. So there's it's not just one guy with his line. It is like a commercial uh, boat that's going out there and catching it and line caught. So. It's better to approach when you're looking to buy a, like a type of fish that's sustainable and good for the environment. You want to approach with the species that you're going with. So you want to say, okay, I want to buy rockfish. What's the best way to catch rockfish? Let me buy fish. Let me buy a rockfish that was caught via that method. So long line is really like a line caught fish is really good for sable fish or black cod and halibut because they have enough time to get those other fish off. If there's like a marine mammal stuck or if there's any other type of fish stuck, they can like take the hook out of their mouth without really injuring the fish and the fish can just go on and they claim that the fish lives and is okay. Like they've done studies. I don't know to what extent that's true. Um, so yeah, next time you're going to go out there and buy fish, just think like, okay, I want to buy salmon. Like what's the best way to catch salmon? I'm going to get fish that was caught like that. Do you know that off the top of your head? Yeah. Salmon. Yeah. Um, the best way to catch salmon, it depends on the species. So if you're going to go like king salmon or Chinook, I would, I would probably pick someone that caught it via sane fishing. Sane? What? what? S-E-I-N-E. Sane fishing. What is that? Um, so there's different types of sane fish. There's purse sane. So what happens is this boat will like kind of stay somewhere and then a skiff which is like a small boat with a motor will take the other side of the net and will um, go around where they where they see the salmon congregating and so the sa- they're catching the salmon as they're leaving the streams mm. so they'll see like huge um, schools of salmon coming out of the streams so they'll wait until they can see it's mostly salmon and then they'll just pull the purse up and it's like a purse stain and so they pull the net up and all of a sudden there's this net hanging from the boat and it's 99% salmon. So that's a really clean fishery. That's so sad. It is. I mean, I mean, well, it's all sad, you know, but yeah. it's like these freaking salmon have been working their whole lives <laughs> to get there. I know. And they're like, yes, I made it. Oh, I'm going to be someone's dinner now. All right. Yeah. But that's kind of the mentality I had when I first went up to Alaska. And I was vegetarian before I got that job. And everyone told me, you're not going to survive vegetarian. So you better learn to eat some fish or chicken. Um, and that's what I thought. I thought it was so sad, but I mean, I really think fishing is like one of the more humane ways to eat our protein if we're, if we're going to be carnivorous. Well, yeah. I mean, they reproduce at such a phenomenal rate. Mm -hmm. Um, interesting. Where, where can we look this stuff up by the way? Do you know, like in terms of what would be the best way to get a particular fish? So there's this really good app from the Monterey Bay Aquarium from Monterey, California called Seafood Watch. Um, you can get the app or you can get the old school, like actual card that you can stick in your wallet. But I mean, we're in the 21st century, so go for the app. And they you can look up an, any fish. So when I go to sushi, I always look up the fish that we're about to eat. So if we're going to eat yellowtail, 
uh, I'll look up yellowtail and there's three types of categories. It can go under a green category, which is best choice. So that's a fish that's either farmed or caught wild sustainably without really um, hurting the environment too much or its natural environment. And then there's the second one, which is good alternative. So that's the yellow category. And it's a good alternative, but you should still be aware that they might be caught or farmed in ways that are unsustainable. And then the last one, which you want to avoid at all costs, is the red category or avoid. And these are fish, usually not from the U.S., that are caught in ways that really have a big impact on the environment and on the fish population. And these things change and rotate, like things change categories or come on the list Mm -hmm. and off the list. Every year, I would say even sooner, you know, quickly, especially in the U.S., when we're we're number one in uh, fishery management, we have the most sustainable fisheries in the world. So if you're buying fish, always choose the American fish over anything else. And that's because we have no idea what other countries do. Some countries have observer or monitor programs, but you just don't know. Like they, I've heard stories of observers getting bribed to like make up data. Um, so America, like we've got it down. So you should get American fish when possible. So this gets back to uh, what I was saying earlier in the interview. I still can't even believe that this is a thing. Like, I had no idea that this was a thing. I, like I, I was just thinking that fishing was like the wild west, and and, and like I hear, I, I've heard stories about that there is like this fish crisis, and we're going to be running out of fish, and like the Japanese fish markets just aren't what they used to be, and like the whole world eats sushi now when we're running out of fish, and blah blah blah. And I'm just thinking like, oh man, capitalism is going to take or it has taken hold. And we're all screwed. Like, you know, 20 years from now, our kids are going to be like, what was a fish like, dad? And I'm going to be like, oh, I don't know, but it was really neat. And like, I always just figured that everyone was kind of more or less on the honor system. Like maybe that you had a number of fish that you could catch and you would like show back up with your boat and you can't really fudge that because they're going to see how many fish you had or whatever. What about all the fish that you threw discarded at sea? Right. Well, this is my point. Like, I I figured that, like, that was basically the only thing was when you came back in that, like, you needed to get signed off on something. And, uh, and I'm so surprised to hear that the, so first of all, is it the government that's employing you, I assume? Yeah. So I'm employed through the National Oceanic, Oceanic, can I say that again? Yes, you can. I'm employed through the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. So they're the same people that give us weather. They have a division called the Fisheries Monitoring and Analysis Division, and that's the program that all the fisheries programs in the entire U.S. are a part of. So there's the North Pacific Groundfish. There's the East Coast Scallop Program. There's the San Diego Swordfish Program. Um, those aren't their official names, but... There's different programs. And we're so on boats, a lot of the fishermen see us as the feds and they'll call us the feds. And I'm like, that's I'm that's not what I am. <laughs> you should have just showed up with like a big jacket that said FBI. They you know, call from us like fish a, police, yeah, fish cops, that's, because that's how they see us. That's super awesome. You should have embraced that, you know, worn some of those uh, yeah. like typical like policemen sunglasses all the time and Aviators, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, are, are you saying basically that there is a one to one ratio of like per fishing vessel, like per uh, commercial fishing vessel, there is always one of you on board? No. So what happens is depending on the size of the boat, you get categorized into either the small fleet or the large fleet. So I worked in the small fleet, which meant boats that were between 32 feet to like about 150. Um, 
And that boat, those boats, depending on, like I said, depending on the type of gear you're using, so draggers, because they're more harmful to the environment, are going to be chosen at a higher rate. There's a random um, program that they use, and basically before a captain goes out fishing, they call up and they say, we're going to go out for three days. Uh, do I have an observer or not? They'll do the math and they'll say, no, not this trip. Or yes, you do. This is their name. This is their number. They'll be contacting you today to see what your what your plans are. Then the large fleet are those boats that have um, the processing plants within the vessel. So my boats would have to come back every so often to deliver their fish because fish can only stay um, good for so long in those tanks. Those large boats, they would catch them, and the next minute the fish would be down underneath the boat getting processed into, like, fish burgers or getting, um, like, surimi for sushi or getting cut up into halibut steaks to be sold at Sprouts or whatever it may be. And so those boats had an observer 24-7 because they're just a bigger operation and they have a more – they're going to have a bigger impact on the environment if they're doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of how it works. I can't believe that an observer would ever go out with someone with a 35 foot boat. Like what is, uh, what is me. the, uh, how many employees are on a boat like that? It's gotta be like two dudes. <laughs> no one, me and the captain. That was, that was the smallest boat I've been on. It was just me and this 80 year old guy. And he was like so old fashioned. That's so he didn't rad. even have a satellite phone. I was like, if we sink right now, like, what are we going to do? And he's like, oh, we, I have fire. Like we had like firecrackers. I was like, what if no one sees us? Yeah. Um, but yeah. So like that was just <laughs> a small so operation. This guy was retired. He'd just go out. He'd catch like three halibut, make like, I don't know, 400 bucks and be like, all right, done for the week. And then just go and relax. Yeah. So that's super cool. Sometimes though, those 32 feet boat would have like four people and then you're just like crammed into, um, hot bunking with people like when they're working out on deck and you're you get to sleep and then your turn to go out and they get to sleep so you're sharing their bunk wow it's pretty nasty man that's brutal i know and you had to do that too yeah i mean i can tell by your face right now that you yeah. must have had to have done that as well <laughs> yeah a couple times because there were these small rush we, they were russian orthodox boats so it was all russian orthodox people on it and um one time I had to share one big bed with four people. Like just imagine like all of us sleeping on a super king. How often, <laughs> how, like, did you meet any other women the entire, like were any of the other observers women? Um, observers? Yes. But I've never been on a boat with another observer. Right. On a small fleet. But I mean like those, like those four Russian guys, are they just like, oh my God, there's like a girl on the boat with us right now. This they, is amazing. Well, that's a bad example because as Russian Orthodox, their religion is really strict. They couldn't even look me in the eye or talk to me. The only person that was allowed to do it was the captain. Um, so that I shouldn't say th that's not a snare. Usually the guys are like, hell yeah, we get a girl observer. <laughs> like, you know, some of them, some of them are like, no matter what gender you are, they don't care. They're still going to hate you. But there was one time that I was on another boat with another girl and that was the best time ever. I got on boat and there was all the deckhands were like preparing for our trip, like cutting up bait and baiting hooks. And I see a girl and I'm like, oh, maybe she's just making like a couple extra bucks by helping out. And I go talk to the captain and he's like, yeah, Stephanie is our um, first mate. I was like, Stephanie's going to be with us? And he's like, yeah. And I was on that boat, assigned to that boat for 30 days. So I total was out there with them 30 days. And her and I had the best time. That must just, have been so nice. Yeah, it was really nice. Because we'd watch like, you know, television shows that weren't just all about blood and guts and... <laughs> 
whatever so so you're saying like the type of guy that's drawn to living life on a fishing boat is not just like reading thoreau in his bunk you know there so some of them were what you'd expect like there was this instance i was sitting at the dinner table this was my first boat first trip first day i'm like brand new they call you a greenhorn if you've never been out so that i was a greenhorn and i'm sitting and everyone's like sharing stories about their time in prison and i was like wait has any everyone here been to prison and they're like oh yeah at least once and i was like "Ooh, i'm the only one that does hasn't done time wow you should have made a story up like on the spot yeah i don't know i feel like that would have made things a lot worse <laughs> yeah for sure for sure um, um so tell us about the like your actual job because we've kind of like skirted around that like what are the things that you are trying to like what are you monitoring what are what are you paying attention to right and actually whenever people find out i do this job we spend let's say the conversation is an hour we'll spend 50 minutes talking about what my life was like on the boats and in alaska and like 10 minutes on what i actually did and i think what i actually did in alaska was the most important part because the data that us observers collected um so i'll go into that a little more what we collected after this but what we collected gets pulled into this like larger um you know pool of data and statisticians use that data to decide what the quota is going to be for next year so let's say for pollock um, pollock is the fish that like surimi fake crab is made out of fish sticks mcdonald's like chicken fish burgers are made of pollock so if that year observer data shows that pollock was we weren't catching enough or the fishery looks like it's not doing too hot for the next year those statisticians are going to say okay we're setting the quota a lot lower than the year before we're going to give the um, fish time to recuperate time to kind of work back to healthy levels healthy population levels and then we'll consider next year if we're going to bring it back up to the base if we're going to keep it low or maybe we're going to raise it because we saw that the the um, fishery did really well so that's kind this of is like, so awesome so you're saying that we're not just going to like run out of fish one day yeah um the problem is no matter how well we monitor these fish, it's not just about over overfishing is not the only problem that's affecting these fish. Habitat destruction. So, um, you know, turning damming rivers in Alaska is like a really big problem for the salmon fishery because it's ruining the water quality of the streams that the salmon go to, you know, lay their eggs. And that's affecting the salmon population, which in turn, without salmon, you're affecting like the the marine mammal population. Why are they? Who the hell is damming rivers up there? There are Alaska, like you said, is like it's like the last frontier. Everyone's going up there. There's so much like business in gold still in oil in um construction like as these cities grow bigger they're needing to dam rivers to provide water to the people that live around the river or to as energy like they're damming the rivers and then like turning it into alternative energy sources which just isn't good for the marine population like the marine environment yeah i guess maybe that's the cheapest solution that's so weird because it also has so much rainfall and snow it's like you think you just make some sort of aquifer or whatever but yeah i mean yeah. Well, um, another big issue is pollution. Climate change is obviously the biggest because that's just something no matter how well you monitor the fish populations, climate change is doing its, you know, it's running its course and it's going to affect um, 
all the fish. And then as a result of climate change, you have ocean acidification. So with like the ocean, you know, becoming more acidic, crabs and anything that builds a shell is unable to do so because there isn't as much calcium carbonate in the water. And so one of the biggest um, cash crops, as people call it in Alaska, are crab. And um, that's just eventually going to, you know, deplete. Wait a second. You mean to say that the entire ocean is getting more acidic? Like, yeah. Like the whole thing? Mm-hmm. How Everything. is that even possible? What's happening? Um, let me think about that for a second and how I can explain it. Like if I pee in a pool, not that I've ever <laughs> done that, but if oh, like hypothetically, if I peed in a pool, nobody else would know. Like, and that's, that's like a decent amount of pee in a pool. How, like, how uh, how much acid i i can't even fathom like would actually make a a noticeable difference in the acid levels of the entire ocean okay so what's happening is that um do you know what a carbon pool is i guess i should have just explained it but a carbon pool or so there's carbon pools all over the earth that store our carbon emissions. Um, You can find carbon pools or carbon sinks, as they're also called. Trees are carbon sinks. So they hold carbon and they sequester it. So they clean the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then, um, you know, like decrease the amount that's in the atmosphere. Well, the ocean is also another carbon sink that um, sequesters carbon dioxide. But we're giving it too much carbon dioxide and that is causing it to become more more acidic. And so, you know, ocean water is neutral, I think, at like pH 7.4 or something. And now it's just becoming, it's just going higher and higher. So, you know, as the pH levels decrease, you're becoming more acidic. And that's a really big problem for coral. Anything that uses calcium carbonate, which is a basic um, molecule to create its shell or to create its home or for corals to just populate. Does that have to do with some of the uh, like coral destruction in the Great Barrier Reef and stuff? How like that's starting 100%, to die? Yeah. Wow, crazy! I never knew that. I always just figured because I get you know there's like a holes, major holes in the ozone there or something. I thought it was just like baking the coral or something, but no, that's yeah, it's coral bleaching that's happening, and it's just because there isn't enough um, calcium carbonate for those corals to keep uh, populating, so they just kind of die out and they become white. Man, so sad. I know. Go out there and see the Great Barrier Reef before it you know, it happens. But it's not as bad as some of the news outlets say it is. I think there, we can't be completely hopeless and say there isn't going to be fish for our kids or, you know, the Great Barrier Reef will be gone completely. Um, I think if we change our ways now and try to even do whatever we can as individuals, I think there's still hope. Totally. And you look at the marvels of human ingenuity, like the idea that that somebody could not come up with something to uh, to help us is right. I mean, not that we should rely on that. Obviously, we should change what we're doing. But let's get the team back on track to you and talking about these things that you're looking at on the boat. So uh, tell us again about like let, let's go down the list of all the different like myriad of things that or categories of things that they want you keeping track of. Sure. So I guess our priority is always marine mammals and um, species of birds that are endangered. So I'm constantly keeping eye out for any marine mammal sightings or any short-tailed albatross because those fish are, or those, sorry, birds are extremely endangered. So that's my top priority. If I see a marine mammal or if a marine mammal comes on board via the net or 
via a line being stuck, that's my first priority. And unfortunately, that involves sometimes like removing sea lion heads, bringing it into the um, back into port for further analysis or um, dead fish coming up on the line and having to like preserve those with formaldehyde so that they can be studied by the scientists. But it, that doesn't Whoa. always happen. What are they, what do they then study about these, these things? So all the short-tailed albatross are banded. So they have these like bands around their um, feet that have a number on it. And, and also some of them have like tags that monitor where they've been so you would take that tag and like put it in your computer and you can kind of map out where this bird has been how far their they you know their distribution is um that kind of helps with how we should protect them so if birds are congregating if short-tailed albatross are congregating in a specific area like we might make that a no catch zone so no fit no Mm, right yeah this is their habitat Mm -hmm. but then what about like you talking about needing to bring back a part of the sea lion or the already dead fish like it's dead what are we going to look at well scientists are always looking for you know just to do like um i think they call them like necropsies kind of like a biopsy but for a marine mammal um they're looking to see like what killed them how old this marine mammal was sea lions are pretty abundant up in alaska they're almost like the dumpster rats of the ocean up there even though when i first saw them i was like oh what sea lion but um we see them all the time but if we see if um, if there's some sort of interaction with a fishing boat and a really like more um a species of interest, let's say a marine mammal, marine mammal of interest, like a killer whale, or some sort of marine mammal, like a whale or a porpoise that's more endangered. We're going to need to do tons of paperwork for that. Where did it happen? What happened? Did the marine mammal look like it was going to be okay? I have to take tons of pictures. If they think that they can perhaps like come out and rehab this animal, they will. So they really, especially killer whales. Or orcas, they really prioritize, you know, being able to do whatever they can for these animals. Yeah, that's awesome. So that's just kind of like brushing over the surface of what I do. Usually, I wish I say, I wish I could say I saw marine mammals all the time, but there would be like weeks I would go by without seeing anything. So my day to day is I kind of wait. So they're bringing the fish up. Um, I'm weighing them. Like I said, I measure them. I have to go through, so if we catch like 40 different species in one tow, I have to go through and identify every species of fish. So that's like a book. We call it a dichotomous key. I basically, it's like a puzzle. It's really fun to kind of figure out, like call, count the gill rakers on the fish. Um, what color is the stomach? How many teeth do they have? Are their eyes this shape or that shape? And it's just like a guessing game. And then I have to be like, oh, yep, I think it's this fish. Um, so How that's, many different fish do you think you learned about while you were there? Well, I had to take a pretty intensive exam where I had to identify, like, I had to be able to identify over 150 species of fish, crab, coral, um, like skates, which kind of look like stingrays, um, marine mammals, birds. So I would say at least I could do like 150. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. By any chance, uh, I doubt it's up in Alaska. Uh, do you know of this one fish? So my wife and I, after we did our honeymoon in Japan, we went to New Zealand and, uh, we had some friends down there. They took us out fishing one day. My wife ended up catching this one fish, uh, when we were trying to catch snapper Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty sure that it's evolving and it's going to take over the world and eat us. It 
she caught it it's first of all it's beautiful it's like orange and green it looks like a like a bird of paradise you know like so mm-hmm. many different colors and stuff like that and it had these uh these like dark circles on its uh on its wings so it had wings like as if it was a flying fish um and the circles made it look kind of like a peacock or something in addition to all its other colors but so this fish had wings and it had legs it had like like four or five legs on each side and then it was a freaking fish and it had it's like <laughs> like this thing could like walk and fly and swim it's amazing like totally amazing i thought i i thought you saw a lionfish but i don't think lionfish have feet have feet do you know what a lionfish looks like uh yes okay so it wasn't that no i would remember because the guy knew what it was he said it and it okay. wasn't something like playful like lionfish it was just yeah. a more like you know yeah we don't have those in alaska they have crazy they do have was it a were you guys deep sea fishing uh no we were maybe like i don't know uh half mile out or something like that okay but i mean it falls off pretty quick yeah um i'm not sure but i'm gonna google that as soon as this is over (laughs) because that's awesome yeah we would sometimes if we did like really deep sea fishing things would come up and i'm like i'm gonna be the this name is this fish is gonna be named after me because i swear (laughs) no one's seen this fish and then i'll look through my huge book and i'm like damn it it's in here yeah totally (laughs) so there's all right, tons. so priority one, looking out for all of the endangered sort of things. Yeah. Priority two, just kind of cataloging what the heck is going on. Mm-hmm. What so, are the other things that they could be screwing up, I guess? I mean, because you are this observer. You are like the feds, like they were saying. Yeah. Like, What are the things that they could be doing wrong that you need to like give them a write-up for? Be like, hey, you need to stop doing that. So honestly they walk on eggshells when we're or they walk on eggs when we're there because they're always afraid of making mistakes and as an observer you kind of have to decide like how much am i going to report them because if i sat there reporting everything they did wrong it w- i would be drowning in paperwork so that could include any sort of throwing anything overboard is considered like a marpole violation so littering or adding to the pollution of the ocean um Every fisherman, pretty much every fisherman smokes and they always throw their cigarettes overboard. And if I'm going to sit there and write up every fisherman that throws a cigarette overboard, like it's going to take me forever. So some things you just have to kind of be like, okay, you warn them, you give them like, this is your warning. And then if it persists, I do, you know, you write them up. Another thing would be fishing where they're not supposed to be. Um, So I'm not. I don't know when I'm out there that they're not fishing where they're supposed to be unless I can clearly see like, oh, that's a sea lion rookery right there where sea lions like have their babies. We shouldn't be here. But usually when we go back, I like enter my data and it's like turns red because it's like we weren't supposed to be there. And I'm like, crap. Oh, damn. Yeah. But other things include mostly just the way they fish. So they're always supposed to be watching, putting in deter deters for birds. So those long lines that I explained, they put these like, there's all sorts of deters. So they put these like long flag things. And for some reason, the birds are scared of them. So the birds won't try to go for the bait as the hooks are sinking. Cause that's the biggest way birds die is they see the bait floating in the hook while the hooks are sinking. And they'll be like, let me go for it. And they'll go for it and they'll get caught. And then they'll get stuck under the water for like six hours while we let the gear soak. And then all of a sudden this dead bird comes up. So these flags kind of like the birds literally will hover around the flags, but won't go in for the bait. So it works really well. 
Interesting. Um, in other, like the saners that I was telling you about for salmon, they put pingers for dolphins so that dolphins like don't like the noise that these pingers give and then don't come and try to steal whatever fish is in the seine. Oh, right, because they're going to want it too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so things like that, they have to put out these, they have to show that they're using these methods. And sometimes boats will only use it because I'm on there, but at least... You know, they they know they have to use it, so that's good. Um, not that they use it all the time. So then is the day-to-day, like, fairly mundane? Like, a, a large portion of the time, are you just kind of, like, staring at the well, ocean? you have to. No way. Are you kidding? I'm, I'm like, covered in blood guts and fish guts. <laughs> and, like, all when the fish are spawning, I'm covered in eggs and, like, fish semen and stuff. I'm trying to, like, cut them open. They're all just, like squirting all over my uh, rain gear. Um, (laughs) You forgot that I'm on a floating vessel in the middle of nowhere, and the weather is just, like, unpredictable. There are days where I won't even go on deck, and I even tell them, I'm like, we shouldn't be fishing in this because – basically, they – my training, my three-week training that I did was – it should just be called a thousand and one ways to die because (laughs) that's what it was. It was like, and now we're going to watch this video on another way you can die. And now we'll watch this video on another way you can die. So everything on a fishing boat is like, you're constantly just watching out for something that could kill you. The weather being my biggest fear. Yeah, for sure. You mean, so before when you were talking about not going up when the weather, is it like because the weather was bad, you were scared to even like look out or? Well, as I got more, um, as I got more comfortable being out on sea, I would go out even in bad weather because that would just make me feel better than being inside. Getting seasick is the worst, and I don't know if you've ever been seasick, but there is seasick. Like, oh, I'm on a little boat fishing. Like, maybe when you and your wife went to New Zealand, one of you did you get seasick? <laughs> uh, not, not so much. But okay. I, and you're already making me think that the times I have been seasick, it probably don't been compare. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they told me, do you get seasick as part of my interview? And I was like, no. I'd been out, you know, deep sea fishing. I'd been out on kayaks, canoes, all sorts of boats. I grew up in Southern California, and they're like. Well, just to let you know, it's not a it's not a question of if you'll get seasick. It's a question of when. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't get seasick for a couple trips, and then I got seasick, and I was like, this sucks. It's it was it like kind of like having food poisoning almost. Like you can't really move. Well, you don't have diarrhea, so that's a plus, I guess. Yeah. But I was stuck in my bunk. I was throwing up in Ziploc bags. I couldn't even get up. It was like. And the thing is, like, when you get seasick, you just, you know, the best thing to do is to just leave whatever's making you seasick. Or if you are mo- if you get motion sick, if you're car sick or sick from a roller coaster, you just get off the roller coaster or you <laughs> right. get out of the car. Yeah. If I got seasick on a boat and the weather was supposed to be bad for the next seven days, there is no escaping. And you, it's only, like, only time can make you feel better. And yeah. so, like, sometimes I was sick for three, four days. And I've had friends that have had to be medevaced off of boats with like the coast guard would have to come because they're so dehydrated they can't keep down food water nothing luckily that never happened to me but that's crazy yeah yeah and it's a difficult thing where you are coming on these boats they're already kind of making fun of you and being like oh the feds blah 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 and like you're not one of us and and you're you're trying to act like Oh, it's okay. Like, I'm not like, just because I'm a girl doesn't mean I can't hang or just because I'm the feds doesn't mean I can't fit in. And then you get seasick. So it's like also this psychological, like, damn it, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I would say the the best moment was when I was on a boat with a greenhorn. So it was his first time. And I, you know, that was like three months into my, one of my contracts. So I was like over the seasick, like the seasickness phase and he got seasick and I was just like, yes. You were so happy it wasn't yeah, you. Yeah, it wasn't me. But, you know, I knew how it felt. I knew how it felt. So I was like giving him Gatorade and trying to you know, do whatever I can because you could tell he was embarrassed. Like anyone who gets seasick is embarrassed because you're puking in front of everybody in a small space. Yeah, totally. So, so you mentioned that the uh, the training video was almost like a thousand one ways to die. What sort of uh, what sorts of ways or like did you actually encounter any of these things in your own experience? Like, did any crazy things like that happen when you were on the boat? Yeah. So one of the things that you had to be able to do in order to get certified, um, there are these immersion suits and they're these huge red suits that are like super thick wetsuits and you have to be able to put them on in under a minute in order to pass this class so we would just be you know going through training 10 hours a day and randomly the lights would turn off they'd turn the alarm on and you had to take this immersion in the dark take this immersion suit out and get into it and it's this like oversized awkward wetsuit with like crab hands and like a hood you like velcro everywhere because that was the only thing that was going to keep you alive if your boat was sinking and i was thinking in my head if i ever have to do this in real life I'm going to quit this job. Yeah, it's going to be like and the then worst I did. day. No, no yeah. way. Really? Yeah. Wow. But I didn't have to actually jump off the boat because they taught us how to actually put it on and jump off into the water because that's what you would have to do if your boat was sinking. My boat ran out of power in like three hours away from land. And so we were in between these kind of in like shallow area. If if the, if our boat ran out of power in the middle of the ocean, no problem. We would have just, you know, drifted until the Coast Guard could come. But we're drifting into a cliff. Damn. Yeah, so all these boats were trying to help us. Like tons of big boats came and like tied line to us and tried to tow us. It was so, like the weather was so bad. It was like 15 feet swells that yeah. And that's nothing really. I've been in more, but this was a small boat. And so 15 feet felt like I was like, the basically I thought we're either going to capsize or we're just going to run into this cliff. Wow. Yeah. So they called the Coast Guard. Eventually the Coast Guard came. I could almost touch the cliff by the time they were able to tow us out. I was in, we were all in our immersion suits, just kind of waiting to have to jump off. And there was all these, there was like six boats waiting around us, um, ready to take us on. Oh, I was going to say, shouldn't you have almost jumped off earlier when you were further away from the cliffs? Because like, if you jump off, you're near the cliffs, you're just going to get washed into cliffs anyways. But these boats were around waiting. Yeah, there was tons of boats around waiting. So we would have, like, we would have deployed our, um, the boat we had, like, it's a six passenger small boat. We would have deployed that and then jumped into it and then. Um, you know, one of the boats would have picked us up and taken us in. Were you surprised that you guys didn't do that earlier? Like, like, do you have to no. kind of like wait for the captain's orders, you know? Yes. But, and this is like, even they taught us this in training, leaving your boat is the last resort. Your boat is the only thing keeping, is your shelter. Even if the boat has sunk, you want to stay with the boat. You like, if the boat is sinking, you stay with the boat. That whole idea of like, as the boat is sinking, like it's going to suck you in. That's not true. Like you stay with that thing until it's gone. So that was, and I almost wish we did jump off only because they couldn't tow us into town because it was such bad weather. So they towed us into this really small, um, it's like a native 
um, Indian tribe that has this community of 30 people. So they towed us into this like small village and we were stuck there for three days with no power. So we had no lights. We had no water. We had no heat. So I was freezing. Um, we had, we ran out of food by the last day I was eating like the, not even top ramen, but like the seasoning in top ramen. Cause I was so hungry Damn. and we were, I was so thirsty. Like we were drinking like the worst water on the boat. I probably, probably with like, who knows what in it. Yeah. Damn. That's so crazy. I know. I, at that time I was like, I think, and then I got back and my, um, you know, employer was like, do you want to come home? And then you just kind of come back and you forget, you forget it happened. It's like, do you know what type two fun is? No. So it's like type two fun is like, it's not fun in the moment, but you look back at it and you're like, I mean, that was kind of an adventure. Oh, dude, I've never... Wait, where did you hear this term from? It's like a rock climbing term. So there's like type one fun, which is like eating chocolate. So it's like, it's fun in the moment. It's fun in retrospect. It's fun. And then type two is like when you do a really hard hike or a hard climb and you're like, that's this sucks. This isn't fun. But then you look back at it and you're like... It's kind of cool. And then type three fun I, is like, don't forget that that sucked. It sucks now. It sucks after. Just don't do it again. It's just not even fun at all. No. I cannot believe It's funny because I know a lot of people who rock climb and none of them have ever used that term around me before. But this is something that I always talk about with people is like to be happy about like the bad times that you have. Because I feel like like when I if I have a vacation and like a, a three week long vacation and there's some like really bizarre shitty thing that happens on the vacation 100% of the time like that's the most memorable thing on yeah. that vacation so it's really easy to get like all down in the moment but I now like with things like that and for a long time now like even in the moment I'm like oh this is it's cool that this is happening because like it'll be awesome a year from now when we're thinking about and this time the stories and, like, and stuff. yeah and it always happens like that well, I heard the term when I first went, I went to this like army surplus store to buy clothes for Alaska, like tons of, um, you know, warm things and like a duffel bag and stuff. And the guy working at the store was like, what are you getting all this stuff for? And I kind of told him, like, I had no idea what the job was even going to be like at that point. And he's like, oh, that sounds fun. He's like, well, type two fun. And I was like, what's that? That's and then I went right. home and I like Googled it. And it's like type two. Yeah, that's what it's going to be like. Yeah, that's awesome. So... Yeah. Was that like by far the scary? Was it like that and then nothing else? Or did you have any other sort of death defying experiences? Um, I've had really bad weather where I thought I was probably the only one on the boat that thought we weren't going to make it. But everyone's like, oh, that's just the observer. Like, we're going to be fine. There was this one boat that the weather was so bad and I was sleeping in my bunk and our boat was like going rocking back and forth. And I Every time I was either doing a handstand on one wall because my hands were like trying to keep my head from falling and I was literally vertical or I was standing on the other wall because the (laughs) boat was like tipping that way. And eventually I just had to like overdose on Dramamine and like fall asleep because I was like, if we're going to go down, I'm going to go down drowsy because I couldn't sleep. Like I was just contemplating like dying. How long did the weather stay like that for? Um, luckily we were going, so what captains do is like, they'll see this pocket of good weather. And by good, I mean mediocre. It's still sad. <laughs> they'll be like, this yeah. is our time. So we'll go out there and they'll push till the very last minute. Let's say the bad weather is supposed to pick up at night on Wednesday. We'll be still out there Wednesday afternoon and I can just hear the wind and I can see it getting worse. And I'm just like, what are we going back? Like, we should go back. It'll be like Wednesday, 5 p.m. And the weather's already pretty bad and we're going back. 
like we finished fishing and we're going back and I'm like, you guys really And the weather's it. faster than your boat is. Yeah. So there have been times where it's been bad, but that would that was the worst. Yeah. I imagine that the fishing, like that the fish have got to get kind of spooked as the bad weather's coming in too, right? Like is are they really getting that many more fish by hanging out an extra hour? Well, no, and it's not because of the fish necessarily because the fish don't care, but it's just like how effective you are. They're so ineffective when the weather is bad because the gear is getting tangled and like everyone's flying from one side to the other. Like people, like the water would come and just like rush the boat and you'd have to hold on to something so you just wouldn't be dragged overboard because like the water would be like up to your neck. No, no, I'm I'm talking about uh, the fact that the captain is really pushing how long before he starts heading in. Right, so they'll be fishing the last two hours before the weather comes in the worst weather just being completely ineffective losing things oh, and i'm right. like we should have left a couple hours ago like we just you lost money on this net that you just ripped because you pulled it on a like a jaggedy edge because of this bad weather you couldn't control your boat but they don't see that it's yeah. like i you know you can't say anything as an, as an observer you're yeah. just there for the ride of course of course Tell us about some of the really good times that you've had. So we've talked about a lot of the negatives. Let's talk about this 30-day stint with this other girl. Sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, actually, that's the boat that almost sank. So oh, let's not really? talk about that. Wow. Yeah. That's luckily... Okay, so that sank half... That, that incident happened halfway between my 30 days. And then they were... They called me and they're like, so the boat is going back out again. Do you want to go with them? I was like, well, potentially sink again or go with this awesome girl. I was like... Well, I have to go on a boat either way. I might as well go with this cool girl and hope yeah. that the boat's fine. And, and it, it was. was fine. Yeah. Cool. Um, some other good times. I've been on boats that are like family operations. So it'll be like the captain and his three sons. And, you know, it'll be in the summertime. So the sun never really sets. And one time we just went out. Um, this boat had a hot tub. So we went out and set up our gear and then just kind of like chilled in the hot tub. And then we... Um, We'd watch movies and like play tons of games. Like it was that boat was really fun because they weren't doing it for the purpose of like making a living. It it's was just their kind life. of yeah. It was just kind of like, well, we make our living the rest of the year and this is our chance to have a good time and make some money while we're at it. And so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's super cool. I'm surprised more people don't kind of treat it like that, but now I'm just thinking about that. I, I'm sure this is the way that all of us are with all of our jobs is that you have it in your head that, that it's work. You have it in your head that I'm getting paid for this, that this is my job. So you take it too seriously. You know, it's like, right. I, I'd be willing to bet that those guys during that time that they're really casual and whatever are not any less effective at their job. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. this little different shift in mindset and uh, it's just such a better time for everyone. Well, the difference is also like these fishing communities. There are the residents that are there like permanently all year. And those are the ones that are like, well, I'm here all year. I might as well not go out in bad weather and like potentially lose something or potentially not come back. Um, And then there's those guys like that go up there just for the season. So they come from all over the U.S. Like I've met guys from Texas, from Oklahoma, and they'll come up just to work for four months and make a living. Mm. Those guys don't care what the weather is. They're there to make as much money as they can in four hours or four months and then leave. Even as captains of boats or you're saying they sign on as crewmen? Well, um, sometimes the captain is the owner and sometimes he's not. Hmm. So sometimes the captain gets hired by the owner and then those captains are usually the most aggressive because they want to make as much money as they can as fast as they can. Totally, totally. 
All right, Natalie, let's uh, let's go ahead and start to wind this thing down here. So first of all, how much can someone get paid for doing this? I know you said that the pay is variable depending on location, um, mm-hmm. but like about what did you get paid in Alaska? You said that Hawaii was probably the best. Like what could somebody yeah, get if they went there? Yeah, less lucrative. Um, those, I'm under the impression that they make $500 a day that they're out in sea, which might not sound like a lot for someone who's, you know, doing another job, but you have no expenses. You don't, you're not buying your own food. You're out on sea. So that money is just building up in your bank account. Um, you don't, you're not paying for rent because your company will put you up at a hotel when you're not on a boat. Uh, oh, else? wow. Really? And you're, and you're getting per diem. So you're getting in Alaska, I would get anywhere from like $80 to $150 a day for food. And I wouldn't like usually never spend that in, much in money. Alaska, no less. Like it's not like there's a lot of like, uh, you know, five star restaurants there. Well, not to say the, that there's not, some but some of the places were pretty nice. Like I would have a normal life in some places, like go to, go to yoga every now and then. And like there were some places and then there was like small communities that only had 95 people and there you're not spending your money. Yeah. It's just adding up, but I would say that's a really good per diem. That's crazy. Yeah, so I would say that because of the fact that you're not spending money, that's why it seems like a lot. If you played your cards right in three months, between three and four months, you can save up like fifteen thousand. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's really good. So it's a lot of travel money. Pay off your loans. Buy a new camera. Whatever you want to do with it. It's <laughs> Buy a new nice. camera for sure. Yeah. Um, how long uh, are these stints when you're back on land? Is that completely variable? Mm-hmm. It depends. It's been anywhere from like get back in the morning and I leave that afternoon. I don't even have time to do laundry and I just have to wear like my stinky fish clothes again. Or I'm there. I've been stuck on land for two weeks because there was a strike because the fishermen were tired of the getting paid like low prices from the um, processing plants. Oh, whoa. Crazy. Yeah. Had there not been that, what is the average? You come back for like two to three days. Two to three days. You have enough time to like do your laundry, get some sleep because you're not really sleeping much on the boats, you know, get some salad because you don't eat vegetables. Yeah. Um, And then you're back at it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Is it just a lot of like crackers and fish and like that's about it? It's a lot of hot pockets. Yeah. Um, Yeah. A lot of actually there have been boats where I've had like really good steak. Um, really good food. Like one of the guys, he was like a really good chef, but I cook a lot too. It's kind of my way of being like, Hey, look, I appreciate that you guys respect me on this boat. I'm going to make enchiladas for you. Nice. Yeah. Are they expected to, so it's funny because like the, the group gives you the per diem when you're on land, do they give the boat a per diem to feed you? Or is it just like, Hey, this is part of the expense of being a fisherman. You need to feed this person. Yes, the the latter. They're forced to feed us, and the food thing is probably not a big deal. But they lose money because they're sometimes are giving up a bunk for us. If the guys don't want to share, you know, hot bunk with a girl, they'll give us a bunk, and then they'll have to kick a guy out, and that means some guy is not getting paid. So everyone's a little bitter. Wow, and yeah, less fish. I assume that they're catching right if you are down a whole crewman. There, so usually when I'm on a boat, I look around and I'm like on deck with the wind just blowing, freezing spray getting stuck to my face. I'm like covered in blood. And I think I don't get paid enough for this job because I know those guys are making thousands and thousands of dollars for this trip. But there have been times where I go in a boat and they're doing so bad that they come back and they owe the boat money. And that's when I look around and I think, I'm making more than you guys. Wait, and you said you're making $500 a day though, right? They make $500. Uh, Hawaii makes $500 a day. Alaska makes like $250, $260. Oh, whoa, that's like a that. big swing. That's a big difference. Yeah. 
Well, because they're, like I said, their conditions are a lot harsher over there. Yeah. Man. And if you're saying that and you almost died, I assume it must be really bad. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, cool. So let's finish this thing up then because this sounds like a super awesome option for people. Um, Is this something that people can do and or it sounds like what you were saying earlier about like all the like prerequisites. Do you have to have some sort of biology or science degree? You have to have a biology degree, but it doesn't. Sorry, you don't have to have a biology degree, but you have to have taken certain classes. So you can find if you just go to like, you know, the NOAA website and look up the different observer programs, you'll see what prerequisites. There was guys in my class that were anthropology majors, but they took the right classes and they had the right experience, lab experience to do the class. So if it's something people are interested in, I would definitely say it's an awesome gig to do for anywhere from a year to two. The turnaround rate is really high. I have people in my class that only lasted a day out in sea, and they were like, I quit. Yeah. Literally, this guy left all his stuff in the hotel. He just bought his own flight and went back to Wisconsin. He was like, screw that. That sucks. But some people do it for life. So it, if it's wow. the right job for you, I mean, but yeah, if, if you're even in the biology field and looking for an adventure, I would say it's a job to, you know, try out. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Natalie, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you considered leaving a review for the show on iTunes. I swear it'll only take like two minutes. Um, Just search for the show on iTunes, click on it, click on ratings and reviews. You can leave a quick review um, or just uh, keep listening to the show. I appreciate that as well. Or tell a friend about the show or something. And if you have any ideas for the show, if you have a particular job or hobby that you would like to hear interviewed on the show, if you yourself think that you do something interview worthy and you would like to tell the world about what this job or hobby is that you have, head on over to halfhourintern.com. There's a link right there at the top that says submit your ideas and you could submit your ideas for the show be them uh, somebody else that you would like me to interview a particular field that you would like to hear about or even if it is you yourself that would like to come on the show thanks so much for listening you guys